hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Ah, jeez. That's a dark time. It was in the presidential campaign of 2008. Candidate Obama was really being smeared in the media. And I remember him and Michelle did a fist bump at some event and they called it the terrorist fist jab on Fox. And I did that drawing and we went down to the production department to give them the, the image to process. And the guys working looked really nervous when they saw the thing. And uh, that seemed to be the reaction of everybody. The magazine comes out on Monday, but it's released to the press the day before. I was getting phone calls from the press on Sunday evening. The Huffington Post called to ask if I regretted it. It hadn't even hit the newsstands yet. And I was being asked if I regretted it. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Patrick Mitchell. Barry Blitt wants you to laugh at him, not with him. Because laughing with him means you'd have to be where he is. And thanks very much, but he'd rather not. He's happy enough just drawing for himself. I'm trying to make myself laugh, he says. That's the point. That's part of the process. It's as unself-conscious as possible. Blit is a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist and an Art Directors Club Hall of Famer. He's been called one of the preeminent American satirists. And in a recent interview, he was asked what makes him laugh. His answer? Awkwardness. When people are uncomfortable. Which, as it turns out, is right in Blit's, uh, discomfort zone. In the introduction to his 2017 book, Blit sums up the effect of all that attention and all those accolades. I've never felt more naked, he wrote. Artists are especially prone to self-doubt. They pour their hearts and souls into their creations, whether it's painting or sculpting or writing or cartooning. Then they have to find the courage to put that work out into the world, a world full of critics and judgment and rejection. I don't see how the work can be separate from who you are, Blitz says. And in today's explosive media climate, where standing by your work can sometimes mean life or death, Blitz shrugs. It's amazing that I haven't been punched, but I'm only 65 and, you know, there's plenty of time for that, I expect. Especially with the hostilities and tensions in here. Regardless, Blitz continues to churn out work. He's completed over 300 assignments for The New Yorker alone, more than 100 of them covers. That work led to his Pulitzer in 2020 for work, the committee said, that skewers the personalities and policies emanating from the Trump White House with deceptively sweet watercolor style and seemingly gentle caricatures. We talked to Barry about how and why he made a Time Magazine art director cry, about who and what makes him laugh, about his biggest paycheck ever, about what weed can do for your creativity, and about finding every urge in his body to self-edit. A couple of notes. Please be sure to visit longliveprint.co slash berry hyphen blit to watch the bonus video we talk about during the interview. We've been sitting on this piece of magazine history for more than 25 years, waiting for the appropriate venue, and this is it. And finally, a programming note, we had some technical difficulties with the sound on this episode, resulting in some less than stellar audio for the first few minutes. You'll notice the minute it gets better. Our apologies. Women's Wear Daily used these three words to describe you. Clever, incisive, and humorous. 
Were they talking about your sense of style? Uh, I have no idea, but the three words I use to describe women's wear daily are uh, uh, capable, timeless, and daily. Uh, and no, I don't think women's wear daily said anything about me. No, you were in women's wear daily. Anyway. Oh, Peter Kaplan went, he was the editor of the New York Observer, the much-loved editor of the New York Observer, and I believe he went to women's wear daily. With a mission to amp up their illustration coverage? He did love illustrators, the late, great Peter Kaplan. So you went through quite an ordeal to get to New York City back in the, when was it? Late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, it was December 89 that I moved down with my then wife. I like the expression, my then wife. I've always wanted to introduce someone. This is my then wife. But yeah, what happened was, yeah, my then wife got a job at Sports Illustrated. We were living in Toronto. She was an art director. And it still may be one. But in order to work here, you needed, I think they call it an O-1 visa now, but it, you need to have achieved some sort of level of skill in your chosen profession yeah. to be able to work here. This story could take up the whole interview, by the way, because neither of us drove and we had cats and we hired a car to drive us down with our cats. Maybe that's not as interesting a story as now that I recall it. But yeah, it was complicated for me because she had a visa and I didn't, but I was already doing freelance work in the state. So I got here and kept working for quite a few of the same clients, but all my checks were mailed back to my accountant in Toronto who put them in the bank for me. In addition to not driving, you also don't cash checks. No, I cash checks, but I couldn't because I couldn't be working out of here. I wasn't technically supposed to be living here and drawing a paycheck. Where was your first place in New York? It was West 87th Street, just west of the park. Brownstone had a little backyard. I don't think I knew you then. No, we worked together in Detroit, I believe, when you were living in Toronto. Toronto, right. I think the first time we worked together would have been 87-ish. So you were clearly I, I, already a legend. I remember the drawing. It was, well, I won't describe it, but it was split down the middle and it was a night scene and a day scene and there was a little figure. Yeah. So we were on the Upper West Side off the park. Do you remember, was there a big first meeting in New York as a New Yorker? I remember the first time I went to the New Yorker, I was already living here and I went and met Chris Curry. And she looked at my portfolio in the waiting room, in the hall. Before The New Yorker, who were your clients then as a younger but established illustrator? I wasn't established. I was a young pup. And yeah, there was like Savvy Woman, and there was Cooking Light, and there was Entertainment Weekly. I did a lot of stuff for Entertainment Weekly. That went on for a long time. And there was The New York Observer. There was Spy. Spy Magazine was one of the first people I worked for. He's, I guess, Robert Priest at GQ. And uh, there were sure a lot of magazines and Fast Company, of course, and Hans Teensma at New England Monthly. They were one. It's all who you know, by the way. I read that you did a sequence for Saturday Night Live in 96. I, I was unaware of that. What was that? That was J.J. Settlemeyer, the great animator. He was doing small segments with Robert Smigel. And they did a thing called Real Audio, where they would take a chunk of an interview with Larry King and Ross Perot, in the case of the one I worked on. And then we just did crazy images with the two of them, like in different crazy situations, just skipping randomly from one situation to another. So they're sitting in the studio and they're talking. You hear the talking going on, the, the interview. And then all of a sudden they're wearing armor or they're, in a science fiction scenario. So scenario. it was like an animation version of that puppet show, Spitting Image. How long did you live in Manhattan before you moved out to Connecticut? And I know you lived in Greenwich 
before. I mean, see, I have a bad temperament. So New York was very exciting for me. I was like maybe 30, so technically still alive. But it was, and I found the air difficult and the noise difficult. And so I, I guess I'm December 89, probably by 92, I was worn down and we started looking around in neighboring towns. And so I was only in Manhattan for a couple of years and changed. And then Greenwich, which I assume was for the schools because you had a kid. No, no pop yet. Sam wasn't born until 96. So there's no reasonable explanation why we ended up in Greenwich. It seemed clean and quiet. It was the first place we looked and actually walking down the street, there was a for sale sign on a house and first available house that I saw. So it was kind of crazy. And now you're in Litchfield. You can call it that, I guess. That's one interpretation. And I understand your house once belonged to Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, it's true. It doesn't lend me any glamour. Speaking of Connecticut, I saw a quote of yours Politico, where you said, I was made for quarantine. There's not much call to leave. And you know the pandemic is over. Is it over? I, I mean, I know it's officially over. I know what they want you to think. You're like a Japanese soldier on some island in the Pacific. I guess. I mean, you can make fun, but yeah, I'm finding the reintegration into society. Not that I was ever, you know, fully part of it, but it's difficult. I've really got used to sitting in my room and drawing a bit, playing the piano a bit, you know, whatever, having a sandwich. I could not sandwich. agree more. Every time I'm out with someone, I have to comment on how really weird it seems, even though that was only huh. two years. There's just something that feels unnatural <laughs> in public well, with people. Right. Yeah, it's quite awful. I'm going to Montreal this weekend and I'm really not looking forward to all that not alone time. Well, that's a perfect segue. I want to hear about your growing up in Montreal. You were born in Montreal. Were your parents native of Montreal? Yeah, my parents are native Montrealers. Their parents came from Ukraine and from Russia and, you know, scattered around that area. But yeah, we were all Montrealers. So what did your parents do? My father was, he was sort of a crab, sort of a sand crab. My father was a salesman. He wasn't happy with what he was doing. Tell me about him. Yeah, Ron Blitz. I mean, he encouraged me to draw and I shouldn't have so much hostility, really. He was easily irritated and sports was very important to him. What did he do for a living? Well, he was like a, he was a peddler you know, when we were younger. Then he inherited some real estate from his father and he handled that, you know, rentals for tenants for a while. And then he played a lot of tennis after that and watched a lot of baseball and hockey. And did your mom work? My mom worked at a library for a while before she married Ron. She taught grade one, two, and three, but she stopped that. And she did do some tutoring while I was growing up. You know, little kids would come to the house and I would, you know, make them laugh while she was trying to teach them English or math. Siblings? Siblings, yes. A younger brother, Ricky. Where would Ricky we find Ricky? Ricky's in Hollywood writing movies. Any movies we've seen? He did a movie with the Farrelly brothers called The Ringer about a guy who fixes the Special Olympics. And I think he's working on something now with the Farrellys again with Jack Black in it. Well, so who in your family did you get your humor from? I mean, my father made a lot of jokes. I never thought he was particularly funny, honestly. But he was constantly, when he wasn't incredibly irritated, he would be making a lot of jokes. And I, I think my brother and I, we inherited the need to be funny, if not the actual sense of humor. I don't feel like there's anything in my sense of humor that's anything like his. So you developed a sense of humor because your father's was not up to par or in order to relate to him? No, I think that it was that the three of us had a need to be funny. I think it was because we were all small 
and insecure and self-hating. And I could go on in this direction. That all makes sense. Yeah. It's a universal theme. It was a coping mechanism and an overcompensation. But it worked in your case. I guess so. I mean, I didn't get beat up ever, which is amazing because I always had a big mouth. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to get to that. Okay. But so as a kid growing up in Montreal, were you speaking mostly French or English? No, no. We grew up in Cote St. Luke, which was mentioned in National Lampoon once as having a higher density of Jewish people than Israel. It was a small neighborhood, and every kid I knew was Jewish, pretty much. Jewish and English. We were Anglophones, as they call them in Quebec. Well, that's yet another sort of... Uh, Contradiction? Well, no, it makes you more of a minority, right? right? In a place like Montreal, weren't they really popped up on speaking French? Yeah, well, that that also got more intense later. A lot of English people left in the 70s and 80s. There were some political events. But when I was growing up, English was still the main language there. Now you can't have a sign on a store without it being either only French or French has to be like twice the size of the English. And there are language police who go around and measure. Measure? They measure. So what made you laugh as a kid, you know, aside from your father and your brother? What kinds of things? I can't stress it enough. My father didn't make me laugh. Mad Magazine made me laugh. And uh, The Smothers uh, Brothers? Smothers Brothers, I guess they made me laugh. What TV made me laugh? And my brother and I would be sitting, you know, in front of the television for hours. Well, we're roughly the same age, so F Troop. F Troop, I guess that was funny. I like Get Smart. I thought it was incredibly funny. Very funny. And there were those two superheroes. When superheroes became big, there was Captain Nice and Mr. Terrific. Do you remember those two? No. You don't. You weren't watching enough American TV, Pat. Captain Nice? Yeah. You look those up later. I will. But no, I dream of Genie, no Green Acres. I mean, I watched them, but I didn't retain anything of them. You know, there were a lot of shows that just made almost no impact. You mentioned F Troop, and I can picture all the characters and the uniforms and the arrows and the hats, but they really made almost no impact. I never think about Larry Storch. The Adams Family and Get Smart were probably the truly most genuinely funny. And the Adams Family was a New Yorker creation, you know, Charles Adams. So I was going to ask you, you know, I, we know what made you laugh. What made you cranky other than your old man? Where do you get your crank from? Do you have a long weekend? Yeah, things bother me. I don't like noise. I, I, I you know, uh, it's mostly noise. My brother used to, we shared a room and my brother would snore and that was difficult for me. And by snore, I just mean he breathed audibly. We didn't have noise canceling headphones in those days. What else made me cranky? I mean, you know, I had a bar mitzvah and I had to join the synagogue and I really, really loathed that. I was a member of a choir and I'd have to go for practices in Hebrew school. Was school rough? I beg your pardon? Was school rough? Were the kids in school difficult to rough. deal with? Well, no. Like, did you have a hard time getting along in school? I mean, I didn't do scholastically well, but I had a lot of friends, you know. I met the other funny kids and became friends with them. And I'm still good friends with some kids that I knew when I was five and six years old. Where do you land on the class clownometer? Well, I mean, what are the terms and the lengths? What are we talking about here? Well, I guess, you know, as I'm thinking about asking the question, I think a lot of confidence comes with the ability to be the class clown, right? I got kicked out of Hebrew school. I will say that for acting crazy. But I was quieter in public school. I wasn't that brazen, really. All right. So we talked about what made you laugh and where you got your crank. 
Where did the creativity come from? Geez, I, I don't know. It's like saying, where do the ideas come from? It's just, I would draw all the time and I was encouraged. I mean, my grandfather, my mother's father, who had a blouse factory, was a Sunday painter and would copy Norman Rockwell. And he was also left-handed. So when he saw his little grandson drawing cartoon characters with his left hand, they made a big fuss over me when I was young. So there was positive reinforcement. And it's probably a big part of it. But I was drawing all the time. I mean, all kids draw when they're really young. But I guess some get made a fuss over and they continue to do it. What were you drawing in those days? Early on, Popeye. I was a Popeye freak. So I was drawing all manner of Popeye and his different characters and Flintstones. I think I drew Flintstones off the TV. That was like, like, that was a big watershed moment. I was at my grandparents' house and I did that. And there was some screaming when they saw it. And then as I got older and saw my first Mad Magazine, I was copying more Drucker style. And not only copying, I was tracing them too. I was excited by visuals in Mad Magazine. I attempted to draw like that for many years. And hockey players, apparently. And hockey players, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a hockey household. I was late to that. I probably didn't start following hockey till I was 11 or 12, which is pretty ancient. My father had a, a tremendous collection of hockey magazines and hockey cards and stuff. So there was plenty of stuff scrap, as they say, reference to draw from. But drawing hockey players actually took you somewhere. I guess it was around that time that I started to be able to capture a likeness, more or less. And that was probably a big thing. But you actually did some business drawing hockey players. Yeah. So what I was going to say is I got a lot of encouragement as far as capturing likeness. Is, oh my God, it looks exactly like him. A lot of that sort of thing. And then I had an idea to try and meet hockey players. And I would do a drawing of... Uh, you know, say Ken Schinkel or Eddie Shack, And when the Pittsburgh Penguins came to town, I would go to their hotel and wait in the lobby. And then all the players, you'd see them coming back from practice. And me and a friend would go up to one guy and say, hey, I drew your picture. Did you give me tickets for tonight? And that became a whole thing. And then I would drive every team. And those were my Saturdays. We'd be going downtown on the bus to the hotel where the hockey players. How do you grow up in Montreal the home of one of the most legendary hockey teams ever and become a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. That was because of all the teams that my friends or my brother and I would pursue. The Penguins, I guess because they were like a nowhere team and no one knew who they were, they were just so thrilled and excited or seemed to be by some kid drawing their pictures. And they brought me on the team bus and they used my drawings in their program. You know, that was one of my first printed gigs was drawing the Pittsburgh Penguins for their playoff program in like 1974 or 1973. And then the team went bankrupt and I was getting settlement letters for the next year. <laughs> I don't know if I ever received any money for that at all, but... Have you saved any of that work? Yeah, I've got that. And can we see that work? Yeah, I'll show you. I had a friend in class. I don't know what's become of him. Freddie Bandell who said, I'll be your agent. And he wrote to every team and said, you know, my client will illustrate your, your yearbook. And the Philadelphia Flyers were happy to buy drawings at, I think, $5 each. And so I drew their whole team. What was Freddie's cut? I don't remember. I don't think Freddie wound up with anything. He was just happy to have the printed stationery 
from the Flyers. He just needed a client on his resume. I guess. I'd like to know where Freddie is now. I read a quote, and I wonder if this started in high school. You said about cartooning. Part of it is trying to get in trouble. You're looking where the line is and seeing how much you can step over it. And I do that in my personal life, too. I try to anger and piss people off a bit to try to see what I can get away with. Have you ever been punched in the face? I have not been. It's amazing that I haven't been punched. But I'm only 65, and, you know, there's plenty of time for that, I expect, especially with the hostilities and tensions in the air. But was that true back then, too? It probably was. I had some crazy friends, one in particular, who was just not afraid. Like He would go over to the school bully and act crazy and just goad him and taunt him and bring him this close to punching him. And it was funny as hell. And I think I learned that from my friend. <laughs> All right. So you go to college. Where'd you go? So I went to Concordia University in Montreal. And studied? I studied illustration and I had a great teacher, Susan Hudson, who's a, a wonderful artist and illustrator. But you know, at, at university, I had to take other classes and stuff and really horrible art history class that was incredibly boring and some English classes that were awful. I mean, I can't remember any of my non-illustration classes there. You know, I, I, the fact that they're not memorable. They really should let you take art history like in your 40s when you're actually really interested in art history. That's a nice idea. You know, and you're immobile. But so after a couple of years of that, I mean, I learned a lot because I hadn't taken any art training before. I mean, I was drawing the hockey players with the big heads and the minuscule bodies without any formal art training. So going to Concordia for a couple of years, I switched to Ontario College of Art in Toronto. And that was just full full bore illustration and design classes. Did your work then look anything remotely like it does now? I mean, I made this discovery of using a pen and non-waterproof ink so that after you've done your line work and you put wash over it, it bleeds, which is something I still do. And I sort of found that in art school. Art school's great for trying new things because God knows I haven't done that in a long time. Was a career plan starting to take shape? Probably unconsciously it was. I mean, I hoped to be an illustrator. That's what I was taking. And that seemed to be a natural thing for me considering I could draw a recognizable person. And I thought also maybe being a caricaturist at events or something. I did that for a while too, which was bloody horrible. Jesus. I don't look like that. Yeah. That's not my mouth. Yeah. Those were terrible. Oh my God. And I went out West at 18 and did caricatures in Alberta and Lake Louise at a tourist hotel. And that was nice for meeting people. It's probably good for my personality such as it is. Did you put that deal together yourself or did you just show up with an easel? I showed up. I had had friends who'd gone out there. It's a it's a real fun summer, and they'd gone out and were pot washers or elevator operators at the hotel. And I thought I would end up doing something like that, but then I walked into an art store that was at the hotel. The lady who owned it, she said she was looking for a caricaturist. It was all pretty much everything. Has been a lot of luck and and serendipity. Well, that's a great segue to my next question. I'm going to quote you once the again. Are, they're popping here. Yeah, I'm rotten with Barry Blit quotes. Did you know there's a page on the internet of Barry Blit quotes? I was not aware of that. This one goes something like this. My career path has unfolded organically, not unlike that of Forrest Gump. <laughs> 
and you're already describing life just happening to you. Did you ever consider becoming a shrimp boat captain? Uh, well, shrimp isn't kosher, Pat. But I, you don't uh, eat kosher. No, I do. Come on, Bubba Blitz yeah. Shrimp Company. Yeah, I could see a nationwide chain of Bubba Blitz Shrimp Companies. Uh, uh, serendipity. I mean, you have to put yourself in the... I mean, I had to go out west. I had to go to Lake Louise for that to happen. But I think luck... I don't know about you, but I think luck plays an incredibly big portion of anyone's whatever they're doing we're all in a pinball machine here yeah but you did not say to yourself ever at any point by the age of 40 i would like to be whatever anything yeah something sure i did i wanted to be an illustrator i wanted to work for entertainment weekly and the new yorker i went to those places and other things didn't turn out we'll be right back Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. So after college, after Alberta, you went to London. What was the point behind that? The day that art school ended at Ontario College of Art, which is now called Ontario College of Art and Design University, by the way. But the day that school ended, I went to London because I had got some advertising scholarship that they give out at that school. And that scholarship was to work at Leo Burnett Advertising in Toronto over the summer. So I did that between my second and third year at school. And then when school ended, I went to London because there was so much great illustration coming out of there at that time. Ian Pollock and Robert Mason, and Russell Mills, and Anita Kunz was actually over there too, I think, working. And Ralph Steadman. Ralph Steadman, of course. A whole bunch of other ones. But I ended up, after not finding any work, I brought my portfolio around in London and nothing really happened, but I did go visit Leo Burnett over there and they offered me a job. And so I was back in advertising and had sort of a dark, mildly miserable year there, not doing what I wanted to do in any case. Did you go straight to Toronto after that? Yeah. I went from there to Toronto and I really had to recover from that trip. But you're now launching a career as an illustrator. Yeah, trying. And who was your first paying client once you got to Toronto? Well, there was maybe Toronto Life magazine would have been one of them. There was Canadian Business Magazine. There was the Canadian TV Guide. There was, I don't know, Star was hiring people. Then the Globe and Mail. Globe and Mail published several magazines, as I recall. Yeah, but I think they hadn't got into the mag game yet. When I first started, when I got back there, maybe in 83... They had yet to launch Report on Business Magazine, which was a magazine I ended up doing a lot of work for, but this was just still for the paper. Saturday Night? Saturday Night, yeah. That was the Extremely Cool Magazine, and I don't think they hired me. And who can blame them? That's where you met your then-wife. My then-wife, that's right, at Report on Business Magazine. She was made the art director of that magazine, and I was already doing regular work for them, and, and uh, one thing led to another, or whatever. Let's talk about how you work with editors. And I think your collaboration with The New Yorker has been very well documented. So maybe, you know, Barry the illustrator working for magazines, you know, in the traditional get a call, get an assignment, get published. Right. How did those relationships work? Well, you just reminded me of one of the first places to hire me when I did move to New York was Stephen Heller at the Book Review, who, you know, is, you know, he's great. Well, that's one of those assignments you get that's kind of a career maker, right? Yeah. But he was, at the beginning, just assigning really spot illustrations in the book review. And I remember 
a typical meet and greet or going in to get an assignment. You'd wait outside, you'd be called in, he would hand you a manuscript, physically hand it to you and say, Monday. And then you would leave. What day was it? It was probably Thursday. I would say it was a Thursday, but it could have been a Tuesday. Where else it was like a Tuesday-ish Wednesday. In any case, you had a few days to do something. I know of all the times I've worked with you, I've given you little to almost no and mostly no direction other than here's the story. And I don't say Monday. I never said Monday. But um, (laughs) do you feel like you have been able to avoid those really heavy-handed kind of processes with art directors? Maybe with experience, but no, I've been in lots of those situations. I mean, it feels like actually retroactively that crankiness is a really great asset in that your talent actually makes you desirable and your crank means don't fuck with me. (laughs) You know, at least that's how I perceived it. Yeah. I mean, at some point I realized the power of saying no. It's like you can be offered work and you need work, but you just know it's going to be trouble and it's just easier to say no. That's actually one of the great secret weapons. And most people need to learn that much sooner than they do. And I've also unlocked the hidden power in maybe. But yeah, you can say what you want about the crank, but I, I try and keep it to myself. Although I have done some bad things with art directors now that I think of it. Barry did a bad thing. There was a situation with the New Yorker. I don't know if we should even talk about this. Owen Phillips, who used to be the assistant to Chris Curry at the magazine, he was checking on this drawing he was worried about. And I don't blame him for being worried about it because I was probably handing him crap. But he wanted to see it as I was doing it. He wanted progress shots of it. And I said, no, I'm not going to work the way. I'm not going to do it. And he said, okay, I'll call you first thing in the morning. It was due the next day. And we'll see how you are then. I said, please don't do that. I don't want you to. I don't want to show it to you. And so I was up at night worried about it and angry about it. So I, I knew he would call me first thing in the morning before I was awake. So I left a message on my machine. Hi, this is Barry. Please fuck off after the tone. And of course, he called at 7.30 and got that message, and he was very diplomatic about it, you know. Well, again, you know, luxury of time and perspective. We talked about your sense of humor. We talked about your crank, and those skills actually combine. Like, the humor lightens up the crank. The crank keeps the humor at bay, but strategically, and then you throw in sort of a skill that a lot of people don't get until much later in life, the ability to know what's right for you, which whether it sounds good or not, you know, with that art director, this doesn't feel comfortable to me. I know it's going to make me miserable. It's it's understanding yourself. Yeah. Well, you're giving me too much credit too, because I still have regular bi-monthly gigs that I just can't stop. I don't want to do them anymore. I know that they want me to do it, the magazines. Actually, I shouldn't talk like that. Forget I said that. All right. So given what we were just talking about, do you ever hold back, edit yourself either on your own or because the client said so? I do drawings that I just assume no one will use. Sometimes I'll put them on Facebook. Sometimes they're too distasteful to put on Facebook. But my wonderful editor at the New Yorker, Francoise Mouly, we've had this conversation several times. She encourages me not to self-edit. Send her everything. She'll worry about whether to say no or not. It's nice to have that. Well, it's very smart on her part. Yeah. And there's been a couple of situations where I did a drawing for when the producers came to Broadway and she sent out word to some artists about a cover about the producers. And I did a drawing of an hysterical audience. And there's one person there, it's Hitler. He's sitting there. He's not finding it funny in the audience. He's sitting there scowling. But I thought, you know, they don't want to put Hitler on the cover. So I did a patch and I covered Hitler up 
with an angry skinhead, and I showed it to her, and she said, oh, isn't this charming? But, you know, wouldn't this work much better if it was actually Hitler himself? And I just peeled it off, and then she again admonished me about self-editing. Well, speaking of editing, I know your Obama New Yorker cover created a lot of controversy. I mean, it may be the cover that most defines you, whether you like it or not, but talk about how that process went. The creation of that one, you mean? Yeah. What was the inspiration behind it? And what was the reception both at the New Yorker and out in the world? Jeez, uh, that's a dark time. Yeah, it was the election. It was the presidential campaign of 2008. Candidate Obama was really being smeared in the media. And I remember on Fox, him and Michelle did a fist bump at some event, and they called it the terrorist fist jab on Fox, which seemed absurd to me. And I was still listening to a lot of Rush Limbaugh then. I was still fairly Canadian then and amazed by all things American. And I did that drawing. I, I sent in a bunch of ideas about the campaign and about Obama. And that one, it just took all the negative stuff that was being said about him like everything and putting it into one drawing. So there was a burning American flag in the fireplace because they were saying he was un-American or she was un-American. And there were a lot of elements. We even talked about putting a swastika in the drawing, but we didn't go that far. And actually the original sketch had a bunch of right-wing commentators looking in through the window. You know, they were angry and aghast seeing, uh, you know, Barack and Michelle. And this sketch, was it a response to a request or was it just on your no, mind? It was just something. I can't remember if they had sent out a request for Obama images or not. It's possible. But Obama was the big story. So you send it to Francoise. Send it to Francoise, who was very entertained by it and thought it was a provocative image. And God bless her, she loves provocative images. And she showed it to David and he liked it too. I think she was more rah-rah about it than he was. You know, he said, this is great. Let's do this sometime. And she said, this is the time right now. We got to do this now. And I was amazed too. She said, go ahead. And so I drew the thing and it was a quick turnaround. I had to bring it into town because I don't even know if I had a scanner then or certainly not a good scan. But I brought the artwork in and went up to the New Yorker office and Francoise and I looked at it and said, this is the image that's going to dissolve all that crap they're saying about him. This is going to show how ridiculous everything is. And we went down to the production department to give them the image to process. And the guys working sort of looked really nervous when they saw the thing. And uh, that seemed to be the reaction of everybody. The magazine comes out on Monday, but it's released to the press the day before on Sunday. I assume that's still the deal. I'm not sure. But yeah, I was getting phone calls from the press on Sunday evening. The Huffington Post called to ask if I regretted it. It hadn't even hit the newsstands yet. And I was being asked if I regretted it. And those next few days were very insane and frightening. Was Angela Davis the model for Michelle? Right, right exactly. Yeah. Uh, had you considered a woman in a burqa? I guess you wouldn't recognize it as Michelle. I, actually, it's funny you ask that because I think that was the way she was drawn originally in the very first sketch. They were both in burqas. But then they were saying things about her and saying she was a Black Panther or a radical. Or I can't remember. It was something about kill Whitey or something. There was craziness. The country really had to go through some things. But you survived. Yeah, I survived. Yeah. I think by Wednesday or Thursday, things had calmed down. But it really was 
it was a scandal for a few days. It was all over the world. Like I was seeing newspapers from all over the place talking about it. If you had done that in the last five years, people might have been shooting at your apartment, you know? Yeah. I'm things of yeah, it's a whole different deal now. There are some you, images yeah, I've done it before that that have gotten me into some trouble on Twitter. Did anybody send you any sort of chilling messages? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I got some scary yeah. letters. Did the New Yorker get you security? No. Now, I lived in you know the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. You mean Nebraska? Exactly. Well, so then in the spirit of younger Barry, seeing how far you can push it, I think this was later. You did the Ahmadinejad cover. Right. Where he's in a toilet stall and- Yeah, that was a better joke. I think that was an okay joke. If people don't remember it, I think it was a thing back at that time. If you were- What happened was there was a congressman, I think from North Dakota or South Dakota or Minnesota, one of those places. Larry Craig, was that his name? And he was arrested for soliciting sex in a bathroom in an airport by, what do they call it? You stick your foot. Under into the next stall, and that's the way you signal that you're ready, right? Or willing. it was a thing, I guess. It was a thing, and it was a big news story. And right around the same time, uh, Ahmadinejad of Iran came to the United Nations, and I don't know what context he said it in, but he said there are no homosexuals in Iran. But it's always nice to tie two disparate stories together if you can make a joke out of two things that have nothing to do with each other. And this, I don't know where out of the ether this idea came, but it seemed like a funny idea to have Ahmadinejad himself aghast on the toilet as a foot was introduced underneath the stall. Is there a fatwa on you? Not that I, I probably would have heard. All right. I can remember at least two times when you incorporated me into illustrations that I commissioned from you. Once it was for a story that we were doing about the sale of Fast Company, and that made sense. But what about that other time? <laughs> I can't imagine I'm the first person you've done that to. I don't know. What is the other time? You just had a, a character. like a, just, It wasn't about me. Just you chose to make the person in the drawing me. Oh, right. As the devil in a boardroom scene, right? Can I punch you in the face? I actually don't remember. I just remember going, I recognize that guy. I remember that now that you mention it. And I thought it was hysterical, but like, is that the only time you've ever done that? It can't be. Drawn people into drawings? I can't remember. Seems like something more Drucker would do, but I, I don't know. Why me? Because you were at hand. Let's talk about money. How much do you get paid? For what? I'm doing a lot of online stuff now, and it pays much worse. No, no, I don't really want to know. That's tacky. Plus, I saw you bite some lady's head off for asking you that at an event. This is just a setup to introduce and share a special treat for our listeners. But about 30 years ago, this was your answer. Uh, $4,500. Here's the story. You had done work for a Fast Company feature, and apparently we were delinquent in paying for it. So one day I come back to my office from lunch, and there's a voicemail waiting for me. So I pick up the phone, and all I hear is piano, kind of a kind of a ragtime riff, and then the voice of Barry Blitz singing, Oh, Fast Company, Fast Company, but they ain't too fast when it comes to paying me. And then you said, Where's my check? And hung up the phone. But your message went viral all day. My co-workers were popping in and out of my office. Play the invoice song. Play the invoice song. Later, when you and I talked, I suggested upping the ante next time. I wanted a video invoice. Oh, no And That's how that happened? Yeah. It was your idea. And did you pass on that opportunity? No, I did. I made you a video invoice. 
and it's a special treat, a piece of magazine history. I highly recommend checking out the Dust It Off and Digitally Remastered Video Invoice Number 3127, copyright 1987, in all its VHS glory, along with the full-length featurette The Making of Video Invoice Number 3127, with cast and crew interviews, outtakes, dramatic behind-the-scenes revelations, the whole thing, all of it. To watch it, visit longliveprint.co slash content slash Barry dash Blit. You're going to love it. Let me just say that I think that's a mistake, but you do what you have to do. You're the art director. But seriously, I don't really want to know about your income. Clearly, you've made a nice life as an illustrator. I guess the reason I ask, this has been something that's been on my mind for 40 years. I remember once talking to an illustrator, not you. And in the course of the conversation, they said something about their vacation house. Uh. And the narrative in our business has always been that illustrators get paid little to nothing and their work takes weeks to produce. So that math never made sense to me about illustrators and a vacation house. And yet it's somewhat rampant. Vacation houses for illustrators? It's random? Well, I'm, I'm surprised at how many times I've heard illustrators talking about their summer house or something like that. Maybe these people came from money, which allowed them to pursue a poor paying job like illustrator. I think the actual truth is an illustrator can do 40 illustrations in a day. Oh, it depends on the illustrator. Some people put actual time into them. I'm lucky that my style, such as it is, you know, I'll do a drawing once. And if it turns out okay, if I can live with it being published, then I'll hand it in. But Usually, I know I can do it better. I try it again. The first one was better. I do a third one. I like the second one better. I ended up doing a drawing as many times as there is until the deadline. Well, I guess digital changed everything too, because I remember, again, back at Fast Company hiring Paul Davis, and he worked in oil, and he had to do a quick turnaround piece for us. And over the weekend, he shipped it, and it was in this big box that had been built with wood to separate the packaging from the painting to protect the wet oil. But let me ask you this. What is the most you've ever been paid for an editorial job? You don't have to say what it was or who it was. The most I've ever been paid for. Really? You you want me to say? What's the biggest invoice you've ever sent for an editorial job? I remember I did a gatefold thing for Sports Illustrated. That was a job I would never take unless it was some kind of incentive-like money because it was just a big pool scene with all these celebrities. You know, Some were swimming, some were eating, some were sunbathing. It's the kind of thing I hate to do. And it's, it's low reward except for any payday. And I think it paid maybe 18 grand or something, but maybe I have that completely wrong. I don't know. That sounds about right. And uh, I can't imagine I was ever paid more than that for it. I mean, from the New York, they have a deal where they sell prints of your covers of the artwork you do. So every month you get a check. Sometimes it's for a real pittance, in my case, right. anyway. But, but like but New Yorker is a good example. You're a regular contributor. You've done, what, hundreds of covers, right? Over 100? Over 100, yeah. But yet they still pay you as a contributor. Like uh, you're not on any sort of retainer. I'm not on a staff, no. But I have a contract. Oh, and so loosely, what are your requirements? The track is just that if you do a cover and then you do another one in the calendar, you get a bit more, incrementally more, but then it starts again. Right. Is there any language preventing you from working for competitors? There is, yeah. 
And who are their competitors? The Atlantic. Is the Atlantic one? I mean, they don't call, so I don't know. The New York Times Magazine, the New York Magazine, I think those two. And in the last couple of years, you've started working for Airmail Weekly. Airmail Weekly, yes, Airmail. Is that a good deal for you? Well, I'm delighted with the gig. I'm happy to have the gig, and it's nice to work for Graydon again, for him at Spy and at the New York Observer and at Vanity Fair, and now at Airmail, this lovely online magazine he started. After he left Spy, I went to New York Observer. I had worked for him at Spy, and he called me to do something at the Observer, and I was excited that he remembered me and wanted me to do something for his new gig. And he asked me for a portrait of someone. I said, how big should I make it? And he said, make it the size of a soft ball. But I know in talking to you in preparation doing this thing for weeks, that there are a couple days a week that are really crazy for you. And I assume that's around airmail. Yeah. And my airmail deadline is today. I do something online for the New Yorker called the Fetch Book. And that's just a weekly online drawing. And that's also a Thursday deadline. I don't know how I've managed to have both those days be the same deadline. And how are we doing for today? Today, we're doing okay. I did a drawing that almost made sense for the New Yorker. And for Airmail, I got a call yesterday from the art director saying, oh, by the way, our theme of this issue is south of France. So I was able to do a Rudy Giuliani face down on the beach in the south of France for that. So I handed that so we're good. We're more or less good, yeah. There's still some wrangling, but yeah. I asked you this about when you were young. What makes you laugh now? What's funny to you? TV, books, magazines, the world, neighbors. Who really cracks you up? Or, or can you be cracked up at this age? Yes, I can absolutely be cracked up. I've been watching the five seasons of Louis C.K.'s TV show. Are we allowed to laugh at Louis C.K.? I think we are, yeah. I mean, some of it, there's certain jokes he's made that in light of the last few years are real cringeworthy. And the Coen brothers crack me up and many cartoonists and illustrators crack me up, you know, and Talmudists and John Cuneo crack me up and Ross McDonald cracks me up. It's too big a list. Curb Your Enthusiasm cracks me up. No matter what. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. Speaking of Anne, I wanted to share this quote of yours on Trump that makes me laugh. You said, quote, he sculpted out of some kind of pudding, I think. It looks like his face is sort of melting slowly. But I want to ask you, so you've spent a good portion of the past decade, unfortunately, thinking about Trump, drawing Trump. And so I have two questions. It can't be healthy having that much Trump in your life. It's not. It really isn't. And it's corrosive. And I'm glad this interview is only audio and not visual because it's not done me any good. But there's nothing you can do about it, right? You're obligated. I could do other things, but I still have the need when doing cartoons for a publication to be topical, you know? I have done stuff that wasn't topical, and you always feel a little bit better after that somehow. Well, you do, and that actually gets to my second question, because, I mean, you do, probably, but I do too. And this is as much an observation as a question from someone who, in a very unhealthy way, allows Trump and cable news, I'm talking about myself now, this cable news mess that follows him occupy too much of my time. I've wanted a politician or a pundit or an expert to 
clarify things, to make things make sense, to make me feel better about the world. And after spending so much time over the past couple of weeks researching you and looking at your work, I almost feel like this is sort of a revelation that you and some of your contemporaries, your work may actually be the answer because you can say what needs to be said without saying it, at least not spelling it out in words. It's the style of your drawing, the innuendo and the sort of metaphor that you bring into it. I've just found it in a lot of cases where that was the answer I was looking for that nobody talking at me can give me. Do you watch political TV? Do you watch the news much? Yeah, too much. I have friends who worry about me. I had to get off Facebook because the first four years of, of Trump, I vented so vehemently on Facebook that I just had to get off of it. I don't watch any political TV. If there's a money of Trump, if the indictment is announced, you know, I might run to the TV for that. 15 minutes or something, but generally I don't. because it is- We'll talk about that because I, I think you can help me and maybe a lot of other people who, you know, we're in a business where we're sort of programmed to be aware and to read and to listen. But I know intellectually that the cable news is not necessarily the most informative. Yeah, it's not even informative, but I just don't like someone talking at me. And it seems like Fox started it. I don't know if they did. But it's really become divisive and so polarized. It's just no fun. I don't even like to hear the things that I believe shouted back at me stridently by some clown on TV. But unfortunately, I'm not immune here. I've sort of got hooked on Twitter and I'm finding that really unhealthy and I have to stop doing that. But again, because it's a requirement of your job, you feel like you can be well-informed without those things. Without TV, absolutely. And so where do you turn? There's lots of news aggregate sites. There's Memorandum, which has both left and right. And there's Twitter and there's Drudge, which has become much less right-wing than it used to be. And the Washington Post and the Times, and I'll even go to Breitbart sometimes if I can stand it. But it's important to flip around. All right, here's a series of, it just feels so cliche to call them rapid fire, but I'm going to throw some things out at you and just hear your thoughts on them. And the first one is cartoonist. And the reason it's in this list is because in all of my research, I always found it jarring when people refer to you as a cartoonist, because since day one, I've always known you as an illustrator, but does that matter to you? Is there a difference? And what do you call yourself? I call myself Daddy Sir. Yeah, I never thought of myself as a cartoonist, really. And certainly I set out to be an illustrator. At Entertainment Weekly, though, for some reason, I got asked to do a half-page cartoon about something and ended up doing that regularly. But even then, it still felt more like an illustration gig, even though I was getting to write little caption sort of jokes. And yet you won a Pulitzer Prize as a cartoonist. Yeah, that's many years later. Yeah. I mean, I was doing this weekly cartoons for Entertainment Weekly. I guess they were cartoons. And then Bill Clinton got in trouble with Monica Lewinsky, and suddenly that became pop culture. Everyone was covering that. I mean, I don't think the first George Bush was being... Was cleaning up his DNA? No. Although he did throw up on the Japanese prime minister, I think. That's another story. But with Bill Clinton, suddenly I was getting asked to draw him for Entertainment Weekly and those cartoons I was doing, and from The New Yorker as well. And yeah, after a while, I sort of fell into that in a way. Are you actually doing any commissioned illustration anymore? Sure. Or- mm-hmm. I mean, there's not much around, but I'm doing some, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of Pulitzer Prize, the next 
thing of his short pants. Yes. My wife bought me a pair of, I wanted comfortable pants because really comfort is the most important thing at this age or really at any age. And these sort of yoga type kind of loose fitting pants that end just above your ankle. Clam diggers? Maybe even a little higher. Some of them are called clam diggers. It's a, I thought they, maybe they were. Capri pants. Maybe they're capri pants. Let's call them capri pants. Yeah, I was wearing them all the time and that's become a thing safe to say that you were the only person in capri pants at the Pulitzer ceremony? Certainly the only male. Yeah, I I dressed funny for that. But I had a nice white blazer. And an incredible hat. Did you see a picture of it or what? Yeah, there's a picture of you accepting your award. Ah, okay. In your short pants. Right. I see. You could laugh at that. To this day. All right. Canada. Canada. Yeah, like Neil Young and and Barbara Streisand. Is she Canadian? No. Sorry, let's start this again. Canada. Celine Dion. Celine Dion, right. She's, she can't sing anymore, apparently. Do you miss it? Canada? Do I miss Canada? Or Celine Dion singing, either. You can take either one. I'm going to answer your second question first. I Sure, I miss Canada. I miss my friends in Canada, and I miss my youth in Canada. My mom's still there, and uh, I love Canada. I have a feeling I'll end up living there again, especially if things get much uglier. I mean, if Trump's president again, I can't believe I will stay here. So my next one is citizenship. Did you retain both? I did retain both. I was recently told that you couldn't always do that. And it's a relatively recent thing. I was sort of surprised to hear that, that it was in the 80s or 90s. What was behind getting citizen? What was behind citizenship is that my wife has moved down from Toronto and uh, we got married and I was able to give her a green card as long as I was a citizen. And it was time. So it was for practical purposes. Practical. And it, well, yeah, why else does one become a citizen? You don't, well, you don't well up when the national anthem plays. Well, I'll tell you, I don't well up when the national anthem plays, although if it's a moving rendition of it, I might. And Angie makes fun of me when we went to the ceremony and I became an American citizen. I was surprisingly a little bit moved by it and wasn't cracking a lot of jokes and was repelling her jokes. Zarly Zalapsky. Zarly Zalapsky was traded to the Hartford Whalers by the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was a defenseman. He was traded right before the Penguins won their first cup. So I guess that would have been 1990. Yeah, they traded him. I got Ron Francis and Ulf Samuelson in return. That was a great trade. I only asked that because I remember years ago, I was a big sports card collector and periodically hockey cards would show up and I did get a Zarly Zalapsky and I saved it because it was the least sporty name of an athlete you could come up with. And when I found out that you were a big Penguins fan, I faxed you with my Zarly Zalapsky card. I like when people used to fax images. Sometimes the New York Observer at the very last minute when I would do portraits for them, they would fax me like a person to draw and you couldn't tell if they had a mustache or if it was the back of their head, it was very, very bad resolution. Okay. The Halftones. The Halftones was a jazz band of all illustrators that I became part of, uh, I don't know how many years ago that was, probably 15 years ago, maybe, or, and it was Joe Chardello and Michael Sloan and Robert Saunders and James Steinberg and Richard Goldberg and Hal Mayforth. Uh, if I'm forgetting anyone, it's only because I'm old. But that was a wonderful thing. When was the last time you played? The last time we played, I mean, everyone's moved far apart and there was the pandemic and it's been a while. 
a smaller group of us with a, an actual guitarist who was a non-illustrator, as eccentric as that is. We had a like a Halftones 2 group, Chardello, Sloan, me, and, and Chris Mariner, who's a, an actual musician. And that was re- it was really fun to get together with those guys and play music. Do you get a chance these days to play with other people? Not as much. As I mentioned, my hermitude, I'm mostly just sitting in my room, you know, playing the same song over and over again. Okay. All right. Back to the rapid fire. Weed. Weed. It's part of a healthy diet, I think. FDA approved. And I think for generating ideas, I mean, if you're seriously asking me, I think it helps now and then. For me, just speaking for myself, if I'm bleeding on it every day of the week, it sort of stops it nullifies itself. But once in a while, it's a great kick in the ass. Well, I was speaking to a very trusted friend recently, having an intellectual discussion about edibles, and she made a compelling case for giving it a try. I mean, there's a lot of negatives with alcohol, and if you're looking to get mellow, you might seek alternative routes. That doesn't make me mellow at all. Well, I talked to our mutual friend who's had some experience with this. And the question really became, what do you want out of it? And under what circumstances would you want to do it? And so for our weed curious listeners, any recommendations? And do you take edibles? Sure. Yeah. I know someone who makes marijuana sugar, which is great. I mean, if you're asking me why I use it, I think- Well, yeah. There's a lot of questions of like, does it help you be more creative. The only reason I use it is it's sometimes good for work and sometimes it's disastrous for work. You get a ton of ideas because it does tend to focus you probably like Ritalin does and you're making yourself laugh and scribbling stuff and then you look at it later and sometimes it's crap and not just sometimes, but it does get a lot of stuff on paper and I find it good for generating creative energy. Well, hopefully we'll get some weed sponsors for the podcast. All right, moving on. Francoise Mouly. Yes, Francoise is a, a person dear to my heart, someone I've worked for for a really long time. I guess it might be the longest working relationship I've had. And she's just, her instincts are great. There's so often she'll see something in a drawing and say, that doesn't work. And I disagree with her with every creative instinct I have. And then, of course, she was right afterwards. That seems to be the rule. It's always like that. But she's wonderful to work with and has a great spirit for provocative stuff and for saying the right thing in work. People tend to stay at the New Yorker for a very long time. Some do, yeah. How long has she been there? Well, the first time I met her, I got to know Chris Curry a little bit. As I told you, I had an interview with her, and Francoise wasn't there yet. And then when Francoise started working there, Chris kindly brought me over to Francoise's office and introduced me to her. And I went in and talked to Francoise for a little bit, and I didn't realize I was sitting in her chair. But she didn't say anything, because that kind of stuff doesn't. It was a meet cute. It was. It really was a meet cute. So she's been there 25 or so years. Yeah, this was 93, so that's close to 30, I think. That's a miracle in this business. Okay, Edel Rodriguez, Trump work. I love Edel Rodriguez's Trump work, and I think the thing mostly that's remarkable about it is that it's what they say art should do. He sort of created his own visual language around Trump. There's lots of people drawing Trump's caricature in any way you think of, but he's created this, you know, monochromatic or at least flat colored template and immediately it's recognizable and he's able to program so many ideas into that particular style. So sort of in awe of that. 
I haven't seen anybody accomplish anything like that with what he's done with Trump. And it's not just Time Magazine. It's all over the place. Right. Der Spiegel. We should also give a shout out to your friend at the Washington Post, who you mentioned to me. I checked out her work, and it really is. Ann Telness. So people check out Ann Telness. Yeah, she's a great caricaturist and an animator as well, and her ideas are hilarious. As is her Trump. Okay. Deadlines. Well... All I can say is if you add another S to deadlines, it's deadliness. Um, deadlines. Yeah, it's fun to sometimes when you talk about pushing the line and stepping over the line. I'm afraid I've had some trouble with deadlines. I once made an art director at Time Magazine cry because I was late with something. And I'm not sure why I would mention that now. Yeah, deadlines are they're hard. Often you like I have a drawing and it's finished, but I know I can do it better or think I can do it better. And the deadline, it comes and goes, and I'm still working on another version of it. And really, in retrospect, I would have been better off just making the deadline and stopping myself. We're in the digital age now, but I feel like either you mentioned or we've all done this at some point, had to drive work somewhere. Oh, geez. What's the farthest you've gone to deliver? I've gone to the air. I mean, I didn't drive a car until much later in life. I've gotten in taxis in New York when I lived there and, you know, said, I've got a huge tip for you if you can get me to FedEx by 9.15. And they tear down the streets. I remember that was a Washington Post job. Um, yeah, I've had some hairy, you know, I've gone to- So you haven't had to drive from Connecticut to Manhattan to deliver something at midnight? None of that. In Montreal, I once had to get to the FedEx desk at the airport. Maybe that was the most dramatic there were helicopters above, like firing at me. But now, because of the digital age, you've had to become an expert scanner, right? Because you do your own digitization. Yeah, the digital age has changed all illustrators' lives and writers too. They used to drive reference to my house. They have photos of Cher, and the driver would wait outside, and I'd draw Cher or Sting or whoever I was drawing at that time, and then give it to the driver. And now it's it's crazy easy to scan something. I still don't know how to use Photoshop. My life would be so much more complete if I could figure out how to like move things around on my drawing Photoshop. People have tried to show me the lasso tool, and I don't, just don't know what to do. Our friend would recommend that as an opportunity for a gummy. I don't understand that sentence. Our friend would recommend that as an opportunity for a gummy. Our friend would recommend that as an opportunity for a gummy. <laughs> Our friend uses gummies when it's time to do intensive Photoshop work. Oh, really? Yeah. And I thought that was genius. And I thought, well, you know, there are times when you just need to... I just don't associate weed with productivity, but apparently I'm wrong about that. It's good for creative. I mean, I would... I try to drive. Okay. No, we're not going back. We're we're, we're going to keep going. Air travel. I read that you once went 18 years without flying. I did go a long time without flying. I finally went to visit my son who lives in London now. And I went, I guess... When he graduated college over there, so that was, I don't know how many years ago. I've been flying since. I've been flying the last eight years or so, although I finally flew COVID-wise. I flew to visit him again in a few months ago. So is it fear of flying or just airport hassle? or No, it's fear of flying at the hub of it. Then there's airport hassle in a ring around it. And then there's the further control issues, getting to the airport, traffic. I hate traffic. That's another thing that drives me crazy, by the way. Yeah, it's a control issue, I think. But I'm working with Dr. Manison on it and, and I'm making some big strides. Do you have a flight on the calendar coming up? I do not, thankfully. I know I wouldn't be this 
voluble and easygoing if I had a flight to be nervous about. All right. I'm almost through with you. I'm going to read two quotes about you okay. and two quotes from you and then follow up with a question. And then I'd like a follow up to that. Okay. In two parts. Okay. Go ahead. This is David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker. For nearly a generation now, Barry Blitt has been the sharpest and funniest political artist in the United States. Okay, stop it. And here's Stephen Heller. There can be no disputing that Blitt has earned a vaulted place in the pantheon of 21st century political satirists. And now two quotes from you. I've tried not to get too obsessed about it, the Pulitzer, and now I'm back to working and beating myself up every day. Resting on this kind of laurel is probably dangerous for me. And this one, at this point, I'm just living out my remaining time. So my question is, and I already know your answer to this, but let's workshop a new one. Let's workshop it. Do you ever let yourself take in and savor your accomplishments? I mean, I could totally see a Mark Twain Award or a Kennedy Center Honors for Barry Blitt. You're bullshitting me, but... That would be totally within the realm of possibility. Well, yeah, Adam Sandler got one, so I guess anyone. Yeah. And so, I mean, at some point, us old guys have got to be able to celebrate our success, or what's it all for? You know, I I go through my flat files of drawings looking for something, and sometimes I'll see drawings that make me laugh, that I'm pleased with. I, I mean, that's... I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I mean, I, I say this as someone close to your age, at some point, you got to be able... I'm close to your age. Oh, I thought you said cage. I'm close to your cage, too. But um, at some point, you just have to let yourself... You have to celebrate your success. You have to own what you've accomplished. And you're a legend in our business. There's just no two ways about it. Oh, Jesus. I think you're mixing me up with somebody. I'm happy to be working, and I'm happy to have great gigs, you know? It's thrilling to do a New Yorker cover or to do anything for the New Yorker or, or to do stuff for Graydon Carter. And yeah, I don't have big complaints. The last few years have been great as far as work goes. And it's nice to get good input, but I get bad input too, you know. But even bad input is good input because input means people are paying attention. I don't know about that. I mean, if someone's punching you in the face, they're paying attention. That's negative reinforcement. Yes. All right. Last question. You wake up tomorrow. All your bills are paid. There's no deadlines. What would you do? I would I would do probably what I always do is trying to make myself laugh. You know, sit at the drafting table, make myself laugh, sit at the piano, make myself laugh. I think there's a good portion of it is 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 trying to generate some laughter, you know, out of thin air for myself. Yeah, I mean I'm always drawing and I expect that's what I'll be doing until they load me into my flat files. Actually, I could see you have a godfather ending. You know, you're out there in the tomato vines. Right. Putting an orange in your mouth and then you keel over. I can definitely see the keeling over. Yeah, the keeling over. I mean, I think about that all the time. Would you be wearing short pants? There's much more to me than the short pants, but I appreciate you dwelling on them. I honestly do. Well, I tried to make you the greatest illustrator of all time, but you weren't having it, so I, I went back to the old short pants. Yeah, well, it's hard to argue against short pants. For more on Barry Blit, visit barryblit.com. And his wonderful and appropriately titled book, Blit, is available wherever books are sold. We have some exciting news. Print is Dead, Long Live Print has joined Hub & Spoke Audio Collective 
a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high quality independent podcasting. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co slash interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co slash shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening.